The Zooier Than Now podcast is intended for adult audiences and contains mature language and content. It may not be suitable for younger audiences, so if you stayed up all night waiting for Santa, you might want to skip this one. Season's greetings, people of all species. It's time for Zooier Than Now. Hey, what can I say? Got me howling at the moon. Don't you know love is wild when you're on Zoom with Zooier than thou? Oh yeah! Greetings, fellow zoos, and welcome to a festively plump episode of Zooier than thou. I'm the Scrooge that loves to screw Toggle. And I'm Love Cat, <laughs> filching all the yummy milk and cookies before that big bearded fat ass can swoop on them. Did you say filching or felching? Indeed, Rat Friend, indeed. <laughs> and we'll be your hosts for this journey. Oh my god. What? I just realized this is the first time it's just been you and me hosting since the end of season one. Really? It's been that long? Yeah. We hosted together with Canis for Healthy Happy Zooey, and that's it. Yeah, the last time it was just us was 12.5. Huh. This is the one-year anniversary of the first time I ever hosted the podcast with uh, the coming out episode last December. Oh, wow. Neat little milestones. Speaking of December, what did you do for the holidays? Well, Toggle, they haven't happened yet, so... Oh, my God. Ruining the magic. Uh, I can't tell you what hasn't happened yet. Ruining it! Okay, completely unexciting. I'll be cranking away at a couple of personal projects, uh, one of which I hope to be announcing publicly pretty soon, so watch this space. Oh, yeah, that's right. Man, wait until you guys hear about this project, folks. As for me, my family and I are getting tested for COVID and then meeting up for a small Christmas gathering. And then I've got Zooey plans for ringing in the new year. You know, getting to see my family for Thanksgiving was all the more special after not being able to visit for so long. And even more so, considering that it's a privilege to have that option at all. Uh, that's true. I hope this holiday season found you warm and cozy with your four-legged friends, if nothing else. Or if you're in Australia, enjoying a COVID-free summer. I hope you at least didn't play in snake-infested seafoam. Yeah, playing in seafoam known to be filled with venomous sea snakes for Christmas does seem peak Australia. Any other news of great import? Yes! We've been pretty consistently asked by listeners for a way to contribute financially to the podcast. And we finally found a viable subscription model that meets the needs of the podcast and our community, just in time for the season of giving. You can visit donate.zoo.wtf and leave a recurring donation on a weekly, monthly, or yearly basis. Can you give us the details on this model, Tops? Absolutely. We've been searching for a subscription platform with a low barrier of entry for both the podcast and potential subscribers that reasonably protects your privacy while also mitigating the likelihood of being ejected from the platform for controversial content. We have found that solution in LiberaPay, a French subscription program with a very simple interface and a strong commitment against deplatforming its members. In addition to not relying on PayPal as a payment processor, which posed problems with other platforms like Patreon, we also can't see any information about people who subscribe, which removes the need to trust us with your private information and saves us from the responsibility of protecting your data. They also don't require us to create extra content exclusive to backers, 
which is important because we're often stretched thin as it is. Okay, so what's the benefit of subscribing to the podcast if we're not getting anything extra out of it? Well, I wouldn't say that, for a couple of reasons. This is our first official announcement of our subscription platform, but we teased it in a couple of private groups, and already we've been able to cover operating costs for the next couple of months and invest in new technology that will help us create much-requested features like transcripts with greater ease. We're also able to fund new promotional artwork. You know, as much as I love seeing Fauci on our banner, the fact of the matter is that while the show retains his spirit, he and I aren't the two hosts anymore, and having us as the two avatars doesn't make sense. These two features were our initial stretch goals, and we've already been able to meet them, and that's only thanks to listeners like you. We've tried to keep modest and reasonable goals, but the more we're financially supported to create this program, the more time we can invest in its creation. If we really see more interest than expected, it also means potentially being able to invest in other community projects. What you put in, we will do our best to give back in some way. But honestly, whether you can or can't donate, we appreciate you listening, and we're not planning to push this much more than announcing it here and mentioning that the option is available during the credits of each episode. Please don't feel pressured. Only give what you can, and if you need to stop your recurring donations at any time, don't feel bad about it. On that note, a few things worth mentioning about LiberaPay. One, no matter what increment of time you choose to donate, the money will be taken out as a monthly expense all at once. So it may be wise to simply set a monthly subscription to save the headache of calculating. Two, you can donate in any increment from one cent to $100 a week, but there are no set tiers. You choose what you want to invest. Please make sure, if you subscribe, to consider what's reasonable for your budget. Three, you have the option to have it take automatic payments or to have it send you a reminder each month to approve of the payment. Personally, I hate automatic payments, so this was a big selling point for me. Please take advantage of this option if you have difficulty committing to donating every month. If you've got to skip a month or three, that's okay. Four, there is no one-time donation option. Think of this as a subscription to our podcast that you get to set. If your goal is to donate $100 to our podcast one time, consider spacing that out over 10 months. It's actually more helpful. If you decide to visit donate.zoo.wtf, you'll see a very simple page that discusses our operating costs and our goals, and you'll have the option to subscribe. Even if you don't decide to donate, feel free to look there from time to time for information on our operating costs and how we're hoping to invest any financial support you show. Wow, that was a real mouthful before emails. Yeah, several mouthfuls even. Let's get to the good stuff. Our first message comes from Sleepy Buck, who says, I need advice. Sleepy Buck writes, I'm currently in a relationship with a human and I love him, but I'm confused. I've been in the furry fandom, so I've heard a lot of negative things about the zoo community, and I was wondering a few things. How do you know? I may be a zoo, but I'm not exactly sure. It bugs me so much because I've been raised and been around so much negativity that I feel like I'm suppressing it if I am. I had an experience when I was younger, and I kind of block it out. Any advice would be wonderful. Thank you guys so much. You know, I actually recently had a friend of many years reach out to me with a sort of a similar question. And I think the fact of the matter is that a lot of times we're afraid to even ask these questions because... You know, heaven forbid they actually are true. But I think the the good rule of thumb is if you're not asking questions because you're afraid of the answer, they're the exact questions you probably need to be asking. So mm-hmm. let's kind of talk about this a little bit. So how do you know? How did you know, Love Cat? 
it's hard to put into words. It's one of those things that I just knew because, you know, the fantasies that I was having, they almost always revolved around uh, non-human beings. And mm -hmm. when, you know, I was going through puberty, I, I mean, I imagine it's exactly the same as anybody who realizes at puberty that they're gay. You know, it becomes clear to you really quickly that what you find attractive and arousing is significantly different than the message you're given by society and by most of your friends about what is supposed to be found attractive right. and uh, arousing. And uh, well, I wonder if it's if it's a little harder to really parse out if you are not so exclusive. I know I'm not. For me, like discovering that I was attracted to guys took a while. Actually, I knew that I was attracted to dogs before I knew I was attracted to guys. Same. Right? So I, I don't know if it ever... Is. I think for some people that, that moment of puberty is not always as obvious, especially if you're repressing it. If you're like, no, I can't be into this, therefore I'm not. Or like Sleepy Buck says they had some sort of zoophilic experience in their past when they were younger that they blocked out. So maybe it's not always obvious. Yeah, I, and it's pretty impossible to sift through that when you're on a podcast and you're receiving an email about it. Ultimately, I would say that this person has enough to take to a therapist at this point to help them work mm. through it and discover what their own truth actually is. Right. I think that's fair. I think just kind of judging how this person is going, though, I worry that maybe they are afraid of going to a therapist, which obviously is something we've talked about a lot. So like, I want to see if we can kind of give some sort of guidance here, not just leave it up to a therapist, because we don't necessarily have the answer of whether or not you're a zoo, mm -hmm. but how do you know might be something we can give insight on. And so Lovecat, I want to say for, sh for sure, what you said before was really good. There's a thing that happens where you just kind of have experiences that are different from the people around you as you grow up. And for you, I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, you were inclined to accept that pretty readily, at least at first, right? There was a little bit of a challenge because, of course, you internalize the message that anything out of the ordinary. And, you know, we I think we all kind of get the clue that being attracted to non-humans is definitely taboo, highly taboo. You know, the, the only representations you will see of that in say popular entertainment are for uh, comic relief or to get across that a character is craved or insane or, or something like that fucked up basically so there there was difficulty but there was only a couple of days of depression i think like literally two days between the time <laughs> that i explicitly acknowledged to myself that i'm attracted to non-human beings that i'm uh, primarily attracted to dogs <laughs> and being able to go well then that's how I am and it's fine and in fact I like it and it's good and I didn't really feel any stress about that for quite a long ways after so but I've heard a lot of different things I mean some people have reported having absolutely no difficulty at all and others struggle with their entire lives here's a little bit of advice that I gave to my friend that I'd like to give to you just trying to explore any other sexuality that you may have some passing interest in or, you know, may be trying to ascertain about yourself, it is okay to say, I wonder if I'm a zoo, and explore that possibility, and then come out on the other side and say, you know what, not really, I don't think it's actually for me, I'm actually something else. 
And that is an okay thing to do. You don't have to like commit to something if you're not sure. I think about this a lot when it comes to queer and trans people and, and the seriousness of identity and how like there is this pushback against people exploring those possibilities like how dare you be wrong about these things or mm-hmm. how dare you be a teenager and exploring gender identity and then coming out on the other side and deciding something different or, or things like that and I think that all of those things are super healthy to do and I think that exploring the question and coming up with the correct answer is healthier than one, not exploring the question at all, or two, exploring it and then feeling like you have to commit to something that's not working for you. Mm -hmm. So I think that's my advice. Feel free to explore it and don't feel like you have to commit to it while exploring it. And don't feel that you have to conform to anyone else's definition of what this or that is. And there's a lot of controversy right now in, in the furry fandom about what counts as you know zoophilia and there are people who will you know zoos whom i respect who will find that even liking any kind of erotic furry art is inherently zoophilic and i understand that argument but uh my own tastes (coughs) as a zoophile and as somebody who uh, really loves furry porn i can see the legitimacy of somebody who is super into pornography that heavily integrates non-human anatomy not just genitalia but you know all kinds of anatomy who is not a zoophile that doesn't translate into their their real life and you know there's there Mm -hmm. are so many people with so many different conflicting issues in that whole maelstrom that it's talking about it publicly is almost you know i I don't think that's (laughs) for for anybody really but sexuality is complicated and complex like that and there is a lot of room for all kinds of variants of these things so right. it, it's this is super general and vague but i mean ultimately coming to terms with y- your own feelings means uh, abiding by the truth that you know in yourself or that you discover in yourself and it can take you know a lot of time and it can change because you're a person and you're developing constantly but I just wanted to say that it's important not to feel that you have to abide by other people's notions of what is what. Right. Absolutely. And I think a a lot of us in exploring sexuality kind of take that initial step of, I know my husband was like, well, I'm gay, so I have to act gay now. And all of his friends were like, what are you doing? Stop it. You were clearly dark and brooding and goth. You don't have to wear pink. You don't have to put on a lisp. And so, like, being a zoo doesn't necessarily mean you have to (laughs) go out and have sex with an animal or you have to have certain types of expressions and then eschew other ones. Like, obviously, if you are a zoo, you're not zoo exclusive. You are attracted to humans in some way. That's okay. Some people will tell you it's not. It absolutely is. So you don't have to conform to this stereotype and you don't have to experience zoo in the same way as other people in order for it to be valid. And so I I think it kind of comes out to like, how do you know? Well, it's complicated and there's no set definition or set experience that defines what it is to be a zoo. Uh, There are a few common things that we all share, obviously, and part of that is being attracted to animals in some way, but the way we express that is different and on a spectrum, much like other sexualities, you can put zoophilia on a spectrum from no interest at zero 
and then like exclusive interest at six, and then there's all these things in the middle, just like the Kinsey scale. Interestingly, you know what you could do if you're interested is check out the, if you search Google for zoo sexuality, one of the first links is gonna be the psychology wiki. And I like to, to use that because it really discusses what it is to be a zoo sexual as a sexual orientation. And that might give you a little bit of peace of mind or at least point you in the right direction in trying to discover this for yourself. Thanks for writing in, uh, honestly, Sleepy Buck. It can be hard to navigate, but hopefully it works out for you. Up next, here's Dostag with a ramble of gratitude. Dostag writes, Dear everyone at Zooier Than Thou. More like dear everyone at Zooier Than Thou, am I right? Servine funds, love them. Thank you for saying that stupid joke I wrote. Dostag <laughs> continues... I just want to say thank you. I wish I could cut my heart in half and show you the layers inside. A beating geode of fear, pain, sorrow, and loneliness leading through to crystallized purple love deep inside. I wish I could show you how much this podcast means to me, how comforting it has been, how it's contributed already to my life, and what it means to who I am. I listened to almost all of season one during a few days driving about 12 hours a day across Western United States. I listened almost exclusively to Zooier Than Now and I enjoyed it quite thoroughly. I'm on the beginning of season two now and already feel like I need to send a comment to say thank you. Hearing people talk about Zoophilia and give it a very normal feeling, human voice is genuinely wonderful. Learning about the history of zoophiles and the Western legal system gives me hope for the future of zoophiles as well, more than I've ever had before. The silly sketches, zoo poetry theater, and Ask Zooey parts give it some levity that really helps the whole podcast feel complete and genuine. So many of the zoo spaces shrouded in anonymity and secrecy are stressful and scary to navigate and interact in. And even though the comedy bits of the show can be sometimes cringy, for lack of a better word, they really do alleviate some of the tension inherent to having this sexuality and being in this community in a time when it's highly criminalized. I definitely know how Dostag feels about finding this podcast. That's how I got involved with it, was uh, by finding it and writing in because it meant so much to me. So it's good to know that it's having the same effect for other people that it's had for me because it really did help orient me in my life in a way that nothing else quite has. You know, this email came right at the height of a really massive retweet campaign that seems to have really gotten more people interested. Hi, if you're here from that retweet campaign, <laughs> listening to our show for the first time, welcome. But it was really cool because, you know, when that stuff happens, obviously what comes in from a lot of Twitter trolls is very negative comments. And then this comes and people would say, like, why are you even doing this? And this email right here embodies a lot of why we continue to do this, because mm -hmm. even if one zoo in the entire world is getting value out of this and sharing that with us, that is enough motivation to keep going. So. As long as people are interested in hearing what we have to say and, and are feeling positive things about it, we're going to keep going. And that's I want to thank you for writing in. We're going to keep going uh, regardless of whether anybody finds the, uh, the comedy bits cringy or not. 
<laughs> right. I think that part of the cringiness of it is that it's so not allowed. Right. Right. You're not allowed to joke about these things. You're not allowed to joke about them in a way that isn't derogatory of zoophiles because the comedy in, in other forms of entertainment that is derogatory of zoophiles doesn't make anybody cringy for the most part. We're not allowed to talk about these things without being derogatory. Right. And you're feeling some like residual embarrassment that someone else is doing it, something that you couldn't do mm -hmm. or something that you're scared to do or something that you would be embarrassed to do. And that's where cringe comes from. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes that can be a very negative experience, but like in, in this situation, it's clearly kind of an uplifting type of thing. So even though most of it's puns and you might cringe because it's puns and puns are bad, but then also the just the nature of it where we discuss things that you are afraid to discuss on your own or you wouldn't say out loud in, in mixed company or things like that, that comes with a certain amount of that. Mm -hmm. And so you just have this kind of residual embarrassment and that's fine. But hopefully over time, as we continue to unabashedly make cringy jokes about zoo sexuality, it'll, it'll just become so normal that it's no longer embarrassing. All right. All right. Dostack continues. It seems all my passions and beliefs that I can make out below the smothering snow of depression are either taboo or controversial, illegal, or esoteric. The only normal thing I'm interested in is writing. But I'm not interested in writing about normal stuff. I'm non-binary, pan and zoosexual, polyamorous, an aspiring psychonaut, nudist, and non-religious but still firmly spiritual. I've always struggled with anxiety, and it doesn't help that it seems so much of what I am I have genuine reason to fear the pursuit of or expression of. Lost in some existential early 20s, I suppose, and it's hard to feel it'll get better when it seems some days like the world is collapsing. It's global growing pains, I hope, and the unique sense of comfort this podcast brings is incredibly welcome and needed. Yeah, this is a really unique time to have, have these issues of self-identity while the world is collapsing in the year of our Lord 2020. Yeah, so I totally feel that we just tend to be people that clash with the norms. And when intersectionality is factored in, we tend to be people that have fights on other levels, not just for our sexuality, but other things like polyamory or being non-binary. So that plus their sexuality, plus the world seeming to be in absolute and total chaos at all times and take a toll. Dostak continues, I really appreciate what you're doing with the show and the quote from Fausti that ran along the lines of painting compelling pictures of the future is genuine leadership truly helped ease some of my anxiety about being a writer. It was one of those, oh, of course, why didn't I realize that already moments. I'm going to carry that quote with me for the rest of my life. I think I'm too scared or fragile to do things like fight in court for this kind of stuff. But I want to write, among other things, zoophile characters and stories that will, hopefully, give the reader vicarious experiences to lead them towards love and acceptance of this sexuality. This version of fighting for what I believe in felt like a cop-out for a long time. Like, I needed to be doing more. I still kind of feel that way. But that quote from Fausti really helped put me at ease with what I think my path is. All of you at Zoot are painting a beautiful, hopeful picture of the future that we as a community really need right now. I, I relate to this yeah. hardcore. For me, I also feel that same way, like, you know, maybe I'm not doing enough or like, gosh, I wish I could do something else. But 
what I do is audio work, and I'm really good at that, at least to some degree, enough to be employed in such a profession. And so that's what I can give. And, you know, I have a charismatic hosting voice, which is useful. <laughs> what people give to this podcast is what they have. What we are able to do, we contribute. And all of those things are valid forms of activism. You remember that guy on Twitter who was like, Hey, I've talked to all these zoos and none of them are interested in actual, real activism. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, and I was like, you know, being able to give positive representation and inspire positive feelings in a community that is in desperate need of that positivity is activism. And he's right. like, absolutely not. There's nothing about this. Real activism looks like this. Uh, and I think a lot of people get entrenched in that mindset. Right. But And when you're in a situation like zoos are where anything relating to you in the system is set up against you where you can't openly stand up for yourself because by even doing so you're bringing a world of grief down on your head then you have to start in other ways which is like anonymously or pseudonymously like we're doing and coming out and saying hey if you feel like this and and you've had these kinds of experiences and this is you know, the general way that you relate in life, there is a place for you in this world and we can work toward a world in which you don't have to fear being known to be what you are. But right. we're not there yet. That's what we're fighting for now. Right. I feel like it's very hard for a group of people to fight for their own welfare when they don't believe that they deserve it. Exactly, yes. Activism for us starts with the inculcation of values that benefit animals, but also in instilling a sense of pride and purpose and self-worth in our community where it's so sorely lacking. Because if even you don't feel that you're worth fighting for, then how can you expect uh, anything to ever change better for you? You know, you have to believe it before you can expect anybody else to. Because yeah, nobody exactly. else has that, uh, nobody else has the interest, and a lot of people have the interest of fighting against you. So this is absolutely crucial. So yeah, writing stories, absolutely 100% valid form of activism mm -hmm. and 100% needed. When those narratives aren't there, someone has to create them. And that, if that's something that you're able to do and willing to do and find fulfillment in doing, that's worth doing. So go for it. Fuck yeah. Here's one that's directed uh, a lot at you, actually, Lovecat. This is Dostag continuing. How casual you are all with sexual talk is immensely comforting and beautiful as well. There was an episode where I think Lovecat, sorry if I have the wrong host, and Toggle talked about how a lot of you all have casual sexual interactions as friends, and it's so wonderful to hear about it. I feel like Lovecat did when he described the kind of, this can really happen? We can be this close and vulnerable with each other, filling with breathless love and wonder. I hope to God I can cultivate a friend group like that one day. I'm sick to death of maintaining facades and masks and all of these cultural hangups about sex really make no sense to me and feel so damaging. To each their own, and I wouldn't want to make anyone uncomfortable, but for better or worse, I have this feeling that if we can't be open about sexuality, if we can't at least be naked around each other, then are we really that close? It seems so many notions of, I accept you completely, I want you to feel safe here, are underpinned with, uh, but not if you want to express any kind of sexual feelings or exist without clothes on. Whether or not it's selfish of me to think this way, I really feel like I need friends that I can be openly sexually explicit with. So, in a way, it's genuinely inspiring to hear it can really happen out there. I listen to that bit with wonder and admiration. 
And I should say that I'm still working through a lot of sexual hangups that I have, but they have been amazing experiences having different kinds and degrees of sexual openness with other people who I've not been in, you know, a romantic relationship with. Anything from, you know, cuddling and sleeping together without there being any sex involved to just being, you know, naked with each other when when we both know that there's no attraction to each other, but just having that kind of comfortable openness to friends I find incredibly sexy and have sex with without any, you know, th th there's always, there's, I'm still learning my way here, but um, having all these different things has definitely been vivifying and it's been something that I've wanted, you know, my whole life and, and didn't think it really happen, or at least not for me. Well, that might be for other people, but it's not possible for me. And it can be pretty incredible when it turns out that it is for you too. And I don't know how to tell anybody else how to find that. I'm still finding my way, you know? And right. Probably a lot of it just has to do with... Okay, it's very general, but when you're true to yourself, you start recognizing other people who are also authentic. And mm, that's right. kind of the guiding principle to finding, you know, other zoos who are trustworthy and other friends who you can have these kinds of relationships with and conversations with too. When you're authentic, you attract and recognize other authentic people. So Right. Absolutely. 100%. I, I, I know that you I self-identify as a nudist, so nudity is a very big thing for you. But really what nudity is, and I think you kind of said it here, nudity is being vulnerable and having people you can be vulnerable with opens up so much for you as a person. And I encourage any zoos that are able to do this, find someone that you can actually trust in and be completely vulnerable to someone. What's that Alanis Morissette song? I think she said, like, I recommend getting your heart trampled on by anyone. And I think so many people are afraid of being hurt that they forget that being vulnerable is so powerful. It is a powerful emotional experience to allow yourself the possibility to be hurt by someone and then it's even more rewarding when they don't hurt you. That's a very powerful thing and I think a lot of us are so scared of that, especially as zoos. We have this secret that could be disastrous in some instances, but if there are people in our lives that we can share that with, that is a very transformative thing. Being able to tell people that I'm a zoo and have them accept me always, first of all, opens up the relationship significantly. Second of all, it also empowered me to be able to do something like get up on a microphone and tell you that zoophilia is totally awesome and okay, and people will accept you for it if you let them. Mm -hmm. Obviously, not everyone does, but there are people out there that will. And the experiences of being accepted like that will give you a much better ability to not be hurt by those who might reject or even attack you over it, too. You'll have the safety net. You'll have the support you need to weather those storms if you can be vulnerable with people. And I think, you know, that open sexuality with one another is part of that. It is a symptom of being vulnerable and being comfortable with one another. So, yeah, I enjoy our group. I think we're fantastic. And I hope that everyone else can find that kind of social dynamic within their own lives. So, Elk, yeah, Dostag continues... I think Love Cat mentioned he's interested in psychedelics, and I would love to hear how he thinks the coming psychedelic renaissance will affect the fight for zoo rights. I also would love to hear his and the community's thoughts 
about the spiritual aspect of zoophilia. For everyone, I'd like to ask what episode you'd recommend sharing with someone who's kind of on the fence about accepting zoophilia and would benefit from having zoophilia humanized for them. Eventually, I'll have more ordered thoughts and direct questions to submit. Thank you to the whole team behind the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I really love your voice, Toggle. Oh, it's very soothing and I could have and have listened to it for hours on end. Hugs to you all. Thank you all so much. Sorry if this is too much or something. It's hard to capture what I want to communicate in a concise way. Here's some thoughts from a random viewer. Hope they taste comprehensible. I could say a lot more, but this is really long already. <laughs> Thank you for reading. Sincerely, an amalgamation of deer, love, and fear stuffed into a human. What a salutation there. So there's some of this stuff we don't really want to get into, but I do want to say that spiritual aspects of zoophilia, absolutely an upcoming topic at some point, especially as we get into like therianism, things like that. So stay tuned on that. Uh, uh, as far as episodes you would recommend. I mean, I would recommend any episode in which our family or friends are on because as far as humanizing goes, that does put us in the context of people who are leading real lives with families and friends and jobs and all these things. Because one of the issues about doing activism on a particular aspect of your personality is that you can be uh, reduced to that one aspect and we get a lot of hate directed at us that focus on being zoophiles and of course we're out here talking about being zoophiles but the, the point is that we are also complete people that we're not caricatures and stereotypes we are real people that you encounter in your life and so i would recommend any like the season for coming out my dad doodles mom any of those yeah so the episodes in question are Thankful for non-zoo allies. Mm -hmm. Tis the season for coming out. And happy zoo year. All of those in season one, back to back, all of them had zoo allies or zoo family members. And I think that's, I, I would have to recommend those as well. Mm -hmm. If people are on the fence about accepting zoophilia, another thing that I, I usually recommend is season two, episode six, which is healthy, happy zooey. 2020 and the reason is because i feel like it really does kind of show how we feel about our animal companions in a very positive way if you can just get them to listen only to the four-legger segment of that that to me is a very important segment in terms of that sort of humanization or someone being on the fence and trying to understand where we're coming from I did not think to gather everyone else's episodes, but I know that those are the ones I usually end up showing on yeah, uh, on Twitter when people ask about these things. People think that it's impossible to accept, and it's not, and those episodes definitely show that aspect off. If you have more questions, feel free to write back in. We're always happy to get emails from you, even if they're of the very long varieties. We try to get one really long email in every episode so thank you Dostag we are a wordy bunch and thank you for all those words Dostag we really appreciate reading alright up next here's one from Loon Raccoon who wants to know if people should come out about zoophilia Looney writes hello Zero the Now Gang I am wondering your thoughts on coming out so to speak I have come out to a few people and most were supportive of me with the exception of two they spread rumors, but I was able to pull the you have no evidence, and if you ever speak about me like that again, I'll sue you for defamation card. I really hate having to lie to the world and almost demonize zoophiles to survive. 
Should I be open about it or should I stay in the closet for survival? I would also like to mention my future career is pretty high ranking in terms of societal status, so if I came out and the people didn't accept me, my life would be over almost instantly. Thank you, Loon Raccoon of Zooville. P.S. If you can, also advice on how to come out would be nice. Like, signs to look for when trying to see if that person will be open-minded or not. Well, this is a kind of fitting email for the one-year anniversary of our coming out episode, so maybe it's about time we revisited that topic. So I'm guessing that this person is probably in the furry worlds. It's kind of hard to see why anybody would need to throw zoos under the bus in most other contexts. Right. Outside of that, most people don't really care, as we've said and experienced many times. Right. He says here that his, uh, his future career is pretty high ranking in terms of societal status. I mean, we know zoos who are in government positions that require security clearances, and they have to be open uh, with their employers that they're zoos because that is something that could compromise them. And they're not, you know, denied their clearances because of that. That's interesting. I but, yeah. maybe I'm just not familiar with who that is. Is it someone I know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, oh, they actually mentioned that? it not too long ago, but I don't know if you were present for that particular one. But but yeah, and there can be problems. Obviously, you know, Fausti had uh, a lot of business deals that didn't go through because uh, people would Google his name, find news articles about him and cancel the deal based on those. Of course, he also had an incredible campaign waged against him in the newspapers. So right, it was a little different from most people being a zoo. His his outing was incredibly public mm-hmm. and also kind of ridiculous. And mm-hmm. part of that was also because he was a security threat to the United States of America, which is interesting to think about. But you're probably not a security threat to the United States of America at this time, most likely. So. Most likely, you probably don't have to worry about the kind of things that happen to Doug, generally speaking, happening to you. At the same time, it can be worrying that somebody might decide to, you know, really try to fuck up your life by, you know, putting your sexuality out there. The thing about that is a lot of it, I think, depends on how you play it. And a lot of that kind of damage is whether or not you choose to let it damage you. Not all of it, but, you know, a significant portion of it. Right. I think when people say my life would be over instantly, I think that's the greatest fear. Generally speaking, it's not actually the case. And mm-hmm. let's think about, for instance, other examples of this kind of thing happening. Let's. I'm thinking about Ellen DeGeneres on her sitcom coming out as a lesbian and then having the entire show canceled. And those next two years of her life were hell for coming out for being a lesbian in the 90s. I mean, that's not even Zoo. But she recovered from that. And... Clearly, she is doing just fine. She she has a very successful daytime television gig. She's not hurting, but there's this initial pain period that can last a long time and sing forever when you try to make that kind of decision. But I mean, usually when we talk about coming out, we're not usually talking about coming out on national television. So that's one thing to keep in mind. I think even if you look at Doug, who ostensibly did have the worst case scenario happen, he never really stopped going And I think it's worth noting that the reason that he did not stop going is because of the support that he had from other people in his life who knew he was a zoo and still supported him anyway. And that is probably, for me, the biggest case for coming out to people as a zoo. 
even if you don't come out, hey everyone on Facebook, I'm a zoo. But you start coming out to a couple of people at a time, people that you can trust. You build up the support network that you need to weather any storm that's going to come afterwards if the wrong person finds out. Because if the people around you aren't alarmed and freaking out, then you know that's going to lessen the chances that anybody else is. I mean, we tend to look to see what other people's reactions are before we let ours be known, better and for worse. And Which know. is actually a question that you've asked here, and also something that we have talked about before, which is how can you tell if someone's going to be supportive? And we'll say the same thing that we said before, and that is humor is a great way to measure how people will react. If you can joke, that's kind of where it starts. You can feel people out through humor, and you can tell how they're going to react to the idea of sex with animals right there. Furries are particularly, if you're in a furry fandom, which it looks like you are, furries are particularly a good group to have these kinds of conversations with because animal sexuality is already such a part of the culture. So the idea of joking about knots, you can always pass it off as just being furry. And those are good places to feel out. What else do you think? I mean, for me, it's harder to say because, you know, I'm not in the furry fandom. I don't really, aside from zoos, I don't hang around from people who would get dog knot jokes one way or another. <laughs> you know, I found acceptance mostly by the route of just hanging around accepting people, honestly. You know, I was able to be befriended by a good number of a circle of friends who were all... Uh, you know, it comes back to authenticity, who were just authentic people and who their values are, are basically... I think if I'm... Cause I've met a couple of your friends. I think the values start with a, a sense of live and let live. Yeah. Uh, a sense of do no harm and everything else is fine. Yeah. People who can see whether you're... To put it simply, you know, a good person or not and aren't going to jump the the worst possible conclusions, people who are maybe uncommonly able to just kind of take data about another person as it comes. But even, I mean, my family, you know, they're pretty conventional people. And I mean, they accepted me with no problems. And there, there wasn't really a way to approach gently. For instance, if you go back and listen to our talk with Trash Panda, you'll remember that I said that I thought that he had figured it out on his own because he had made some offhand comment about bestiality and I had uh, made a comment back and I thought that his reaction was that he kind of put the pieces together right there. And it turned out years later that no, he, he had no idea at all because, you know, most people's minds don't really jump to that as an actual <laughs> possibility. In the furry scene, yeah, that's different because for obvious reasons at this point, but <laughs> the, I think for, for a lot of people there, there isn't really a gentle way to make that leap you know it's like there there comes a jumping off point where it's like based on what i know of this person and their ability to accept unconventional facts about the world and other people the way that i've seen them react or heard them speak about whatever do i think they'll be able to handle this or not i've had pretty good luck with that there, there have been people where I thought they would be able to handle it, and they really haven't been, but there wasn't like a blow-up over it. it was, they were just like, oh, I don't know about that. It's like, oh, okay, I thought you'd be a little bit more accepting than that, but whatevs. But that was it. It was just right. kind of like whatevs. Like, they're not out to ruin my life or anything, you know? Right. I think you can ask yourself a few questions when you're trying to talk to someone mm -hmm. about this, and I think 
one big question is, are they a gossip? Do you know that they like to come to you with other people's juicy things? Because if you do, maybe don't tell them all your secrets because they're going to tell them someone else. Another question you might ask is, would I tell this person any other kind of secret about myself, regardless of if it was zoophilia or not? If you don't trust them with any other personal information, they're not close enough to you that you should trust them with your zoophilia. It's really like, how much do I trust this person with every other aspect of my identity before even considering zoophilia? And if you don't have that trust, it's probably not a good idea to open that up. And that's just the case, whether it's zoophilia or if any other type of thing that you wouldn't share. Zoophilia is one of those things. Mm-hmm. I think if you can be vulnerable with someone, that is the biggest sign that you can talk to them about things. And there are two reasons. One is because they already know you on a level that other people don't. So they have some greater insight into who you are and what you're about and what you believe and how you act that other people don't have. And so when you tell them, by the way, I'm also attracted to animals, they don't jump to the conclusion that, oh, you must be terrible. They have to take that information and piece it together with what they already know about you. And they're more likely to be able to do that. And secondly, if you're able to be vulnerable with someone, most likely they have shared things with you that that are hard for them to talk about with other people. And so there's this camaraderie in knowing things about one another that other people don't. And that kind of thing leads to closeness. And so if you can be vulnerable with someone, that's a good kind of relationship where you can feel more comfortable about coming out to them on multiple levels. Those are my tips. I think that's about it. So I hope that helps you, Lean Raccoon. Yeah. And thanks for writing in. Feel free to write in again or reach back out. So we've gotten a lot of emails over the past month, and we don't have time to read them all today. However, we do read each message, and if you give me some time, I will respond. I see some of you asking about Reddit, some of you asking for advice, some of you who don't want your emails read on the air. I haven't responded because I want to take the time to give you a thoughtful response, so please be patient with me and know you are heard. With that, there's one more email we'd like to share from a new zoo ally who writes in about shifting their entire viewpoint. A new zoo ally writes in, uh, Hey man, he must be talking to you, Toggle. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to say that before I found your videos, I was mostly negative of zoophiles and believed all the dogma, no pun intended, of our anthropocentric society. However, seeing a ton of the arguments you and your friends have put forth has turned my whole worldview upside down. Our society is primarily based around humans, with animals being essentially slaves. I see the argument being used that animals are primal and unintelligent, but to be fair, aren't humans? Aren't us humans animals too? Homo sapiens? We are the product of evolution, just like every other animal. The only difference is that we conquered the world first. Yet in many ways, if you look in society, you see people acting just like animals in the wild, if not worse at times. We tell people that they can't have loving relationships with other animals, yet we forcibly impregnate and slaughter animals against their will all the time. Now that I look back, it seems bizarre to have that worldview, but then I realize it's our society in general's viewpoint. It's time for things to change. Thank you all for what you do, and I hope the zoos get equal representation they deserve. Thank you, New Zoo Ally. We literally could not have written a better segue into this episode's topic. 
Literally, we tried. Toggle typed up a whole thing sitting on the crapper, and then we noticed your email and just <laughs> scrapped everything we had. <laughs> Honestly, this is why people on Twitter accuse us of making these emails up, so well done hitting many of the salient points we want to discuss. However, before we jump into the topic later on, we'd like to give a short disclaimer. Today, we're centering our discussion on animal autonomy and speciesism. And for many of us on the podcast, it's the kind of discussion that leads to a certain worldview some find controversial. Uh, you mean the part where we have sex with animals? And what's controversial about that? Eating dog pussy is the gold standard of respecting animal autonomy. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it is interesting how something that seems as basic as treat animals with dignity and respect opens up a king-sized can of worms when you really delve into the topic. The ways human beings treat non-humans is always controversial. Last year, I opined that veganism was, in my observation, a more divisive topic than zoophilia. In fact, even in planning for this episode, there was a heated argument about meat-eating between the contributors. The visceral reactions people have to not just the treatment of animals, but, for instance, to the term veganism, is a serious impediment to productive discourse. As one can see from even a quick perusal of vegan and non-vegan Twitter, the discussion is mostly reduced to the exchange of vitriolic talking points, with the result being little more than further entrenchment of the attitudes everyone started with. It's not the purpose of this podcast to engage in divisiveness or controversy for its own sake. That said, uh, my personal attitudes do align with the tenets of veganism, and what we'll be discussing in this episode does, in my mind, support those attitudes. It is not our goal to proselytize, but in examining the topic of speciesism, we hope that it will be useful in informing your own principles and goals regarding your relationship with animal kind. This conversation is fairly foundational for the philosophies espoused by our humble podcast. So don't be surprised if you hear familiar ideas or if we revisit these topics again from different perspectives. I think that's about enough introduction and disclaimer, so take us out to the sponsors, Elsie. Stay tuned for more Zooey goodness on Zooey Than Now right after this. This week's podcast is brought to you by the 2020 Reindeer Games, featuring social distance running, intercontinental zooming, all-female masked antler wrestling, Yahtzee, and other games guaranteed to go viral during this pandemic. The 2020 Reindeer Games, streaming now. And also by Bougie Neighborhood Food Store. When you need highly overpriced ingredients you can't find anywhere else, be sure to get Bougie. Whether you want unprocessed food, vegan food, or fair trade food, we're guaranteed to have the brands your regular supermarket refuses to carry, and more of the few options they do. Oh, hey. Actually, some of this vegan stuff is cheaper here. Huh, how about that? Bougie Neighborhood Food Store. You might actually be surprised. And finally, books. We referenced several in this episode. It turns out this archaic medium of obtaining information is not absolute after all. Books, where the good shit is. Well met, fellow Vikingers. To Valhalla, you have earned your right to feast among your brave ancestors and the very gods themselves. I am Relief, the Enduring, and it is my honor to show you to your eternal home. Thank you, Hardleaf. 
I'm Olsen Thrice-Pierced, and this is my companion at arms, Sigrid Ravenseye. We are honored to be here, and we are ready to fight and drink to our heart's content. Yes, this looks so much better than the Christian afterlife. All that talk about how peaceful and quiet their heaven sounds is extremely boring, and no place for warriors like us. Come, let me introduce you to the gods. I'm sure you'll recognize them all, and maybe even get to throw a punch or two their way. Yes, I see them at the table. There's Freya, Thor, Heimdall, Odin, and Loki, too. Is it true what they say about Loki? That he really has the wolf Fenrir for a son? Oh yes, what a day that was. The wolf mother, Angerboda, first tries to seduce Loki in her giantess form. Now, they may be evil, but most Astir will agree that a giantess is a creature of outstanding beauty. Most Astir, of course, are not Loki. He's always been particular in his tastes. I'm sorry, particular? How exactly? Well, as I said, it took some digging on her end, but once she realized that Loki preferred his partner's less, uh, humanoid, she shifted into a wolf, switched her tail, and that was that. He immediately fell for her wiles, and now we have to keep her kid tied up so he doesn't literally eat us all. Well, that is peculiar. But how did Angerboda communicate what she wanted to Loki? Did she still speak? Not as such. Not how you or I do. But any she-wolf, shape-shifting giantess or not, is perfectly capable of signaling her intentions. If you've ever tried to get a wolf to do something they ain't into, you'll know that they have no problem with telling you that no means no. I guess so. After all, that's why Olsen's brother isn't up here. Poor Volunder twice scolded. If only he'd listened the first time! That wasn't his first looping lever either. Loki never really talked about it, but we but we were all able to see him spending long days and nights with his companions. I think he may have been embarrassed, but from what we can tell, it seems like his other partners never appeared hurt or in distress. I swear, he treats them better than us most days. Fortunately for us, it seems mortal wolves aren't capable of birthing instruments of Ragnarok. Well, if there's no harm, I don't see the problem, even if it is a little odd. Exactly. If there's any harm, it's Loki who bears the brunt of it all. Scratches, cuts, let's not even talk about the time he seduced the Builder's Prize Stallion by turning into the most eye-catching, beautiful Mary you've ever laid your eyes on. He was complaining about the bruising from that particular tryst long after he changed back into his normal form. Still, at least his desire for that lusty cult kept us, in particular Freya, safe. Odin even got his war steed, Slipnir, out of the whole encounter. I had forgotten that particular story. So everyone here is just okay with Loki's preference for animal partners? As I said, apart from the one time where he sired a wolf that could easily end us all, most don't bat an eye. He seems happy with it. He's not causing us, or them, any distress. And honestly, with Loki, that's the best you've known for. Crew, let me. I need a drink. Now you're talking. Hail to Valhalla! Valhalla! we 
Yeah, there's werewolves, there's their wolves, shapeshifters beware It's a wonder how you mongols got released from their snare Bear the bite marks from the fight so you retreat to your lair The righteousness is right, but yo, they don't even care They let me have me burden on condemnable few But at best a feckless layman built asunder the truth The devil scramble at the chance to get a glance from the pew Your request for an amen is pending review There's something holy and divine and demonizing the kind Never met a god that questioned if his cause was sublime Nothing gnaws, I give them pause I know they're sleeping just fine But check that holy book for plot holes Never know what you'll find Heard you prefer your subjects rare Maybe battered and fried I heard protecting them from sex Became the source of your pride You can't expect to win respect And build up trust when you lied Your request for an amen Has just been denied So it goes But it shows the lows You're willing to stoop to The stews you and your crew Mixed with spoiled milk and mildew These ancient animosities Appear to be brand new Cripped from Hammurabi's code And just a time-worn taboo Let's review You look at love you hate And rush to make a case that it's debasing and dangerous But that flies in the face of all the evidence you've gathered So rather than give up the chase You shout louder, form a mob, and try to weaponize disgrace I'm serving up a slice of pies of savory and sweet So just back up out of the kitchen if you can't stand the heat Take a seat, send a tweet, but we won't be discreet If our love must be a war, then we will never retreat We're no light brigade, though unafraid We wish to reason why And persuade those in the middle that we're on the same side You can accuse us of decades of sinning And all while your numbers are steadily thinning Just fall on your cheeks while you're mocking because our enlightenment's only beginning. Save your prayers. Save your prayers. Save your prayers. It's a race to the bottom, diving deeper en masse But there's not a loving fairy queen prepared to kiss your ass We were bewitched by a potion, just fell in love with what we saw Found the beauty in beasts, fought for our lover's tooth and claw Now you can say, like Shakespeare, that our love is lower class That a beast of burden's tenderness is simple and crass But seeing differences so dearly never was a tragic flaw Just another application of nature's central law The propaganda's so important cause it's faulty at best If you're worried about the future, know there will be a test If you're practicing the tactics that these hellions detest Know the taboo that you break's another way to protest I guess it's brutal optimism that I like to employ I'm way too rude for servitude, I'm not the dude to play coy These charlatans can't serve us, these halos don't deserve us If you're satisfied there's a survey, please rate me on my service Welcome back fellow zoos We are joined by Quantum for this discussion Hello Quantum Hello Hey, alright so let's just dive right on in. I think where we want to start is we we have to acknowledge that there are different perspectives that zoos have towards what it is to be a zoo, what it is to have a relationship with animals, our relationships with animals as zoos and as people. So like, how would you define what what do you when you think of a zoo file? How do you define it, Lovecat? What that is definitely. There's been a, a lot of controversy amongst zoos about who counts as a zoophile. In my mind, and this is purely my own definition, according to my own experience, is somebody who is attracted to animals both sexually and what I would say romantically. Although I, I do acknowledge that the people that I recognize as zoophiles in my life, in in my view, don't feel exactly romantically toward non-humans, but to me, that's what it is. It's seeing that non-human beings are fully legitimate and worthy partners in life. 
in all ways. Yeah, I think for me, an important basis is recognizing animal personhood is important for me. Mm-hmm. But like romance doesn't really factor in. And that's partly because I don't think it factors in for me. But I also have a very casual relationship with sex, whether it's with humans or with animals. Mm-hmm. I think you could be a zoo and be respectful towards other people without being romantically involved. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, Quantum? When I first came into the community, I had, in my mind, a pretty clear idea of what I thought a zoophile was. But then I ended up talking to you, Toggle, about it. And, um, you know, I kind of stated to you that I thought, like, Love Cat, it was more more so a romantic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then you started talking about homosexuality, and we started comparing that, and then we started talking about it. Say we have someone who's only sexually attracted to the same sex, but not romantically. Are they gay? And the inverse, they're just romantically attracted, no sexual attraction. Are they gay? And do you need to have both attractions, just one? And that really got me thinking. I didn't really have a clear answer because you talk about someone having sex with someone of the same sex, you'd say that's gay. But uh, <laughs> but in terms of sexuality, it, it wasn't so certain to me if that person would be gay if they had just a sexual attraction. So that really got me thinking, and I really haven't arrived at a clear conclusion. I think that's okay, because I don't think there is really a, a clear-cut answer for a lot of people. Like, a lot of people have a lot of like rules for, you can't sit with us if... So, like, Mm -hmm. um, are you more of an animal fetishist or or that kind of a thing? It's a gray area where, yeah, you have sex with animals, but are you attracted to animals? What is the reason? So there's lots of different, like, we're trying to, to varying degrees, kind of like gatekeep what our community standards are. And I think to some extent that's very good because obviously coming up with community standards and adhering to them is is good. Mm -hmm. But... I think a lot of that stems from one thing, and you guys can tell me if you agree or not. I think a lot of it stems from one thing, and it's the concern about the idea of I treat my animal as a pet with benefits. Like the negligent and demeaning attitude of what pet ownership is, where an animal is like reduced to a possession, and then from there, oh, you have sex with it as a possession. And we say it there because, like, are you regarding your animal isn't it. And so that, I think, is where a lot of that concern stems from. Would you agree with me there? Yeah, and most of the objections that I would have to to any given relationship along those lines of, of pets with benefits, the same objections that I would have to a normal pet owner type of relationship for exactly those reasons, because the non-human in that is seen and i'm not i'm just speaking in a general way i know that this is not universally applicable but often i think is treated as an object as an accessory to life along with the house and white picket fence it's just they're more of a thing that is owned for the pleasure of the human involved right and uh, that can include sexual pleasure but it's still a reduction of this other being's existence to the whims of the human involved right and I think, so a lot of people will be like, you can't be a zoophile if you're not romantically attracted to animals. I really think a lot of that stems from 
that fear that if you're not romantically attracted to animals, then you can't recognize animal personhood or, or something like that. And a lot of this, what this highlights is that actual lived experience is not uh, subordinate to definitions and our attempts to categorize. These are for our convenience, but we get into trouble when we try to make our actual experience or more so the experience of other people adhere to a particular definition of right. a word. I, I think it's fair to acknowledge, and we talked about furries engaging in narrative resistance and how that can be an issue, but to some extent, zoophiles are always get engaged in a, a form of narrative resistance themselves, mm -hmm. where their narrative is that we are abusive or exploitative of animals. Mm -hmm. And so in trying to define ourselves, we are always defining ourselves against that, which is frankly good, to be honest, because I don't think any of us actually want to not only be associated with that, but also actually exploit animals. And so th that's where you get into things like fence hopping, like is fence hopping a bad thing? Some people will just go, yes, of course, but I don't think they know why, of course, because to be honest, fence hopping can certainly be with or without a romantic component. I could be respectful to the personhood of the animal or exploitative. It could be a casual one night fling, or it could be you falling in love with the horse at the stable that you don't own, but you're the person who takes care of that horse and you have an ongoing relationship with them, but that's technically fence hopping. Yeah, so that's. Um, I know you got in trouble online for that, didn't you, Quantum? Yeah, I think it was more so in private chats. It was brought up. I was criticized for it. So that started a pretty nasty, very heated argument and conversation in there. So there was a, a few zoos who found it to be very deplorable. And uh, I, for one, defended it. And it, it sparked a whole big nasty conversation. So I ended up yeah. going around talking to zoos, getting their opinions on it. And it's really... A funny subject if I can bring it up a, a lot of people are in opposition to fence hopping because a common argument is it's someone else's animal but that kind of mm -hmm. breaks down when I think in general zoos tend to recognize the autonomy of animals that they're their own individual beings that can make their own decisions and such exactly so that kind of breaks down like the whole argument of fence hopping because they don't belong to someone they're their own free beings and they should be able to choose whom they have a relationship with exactly and so i, I think it's what's interesting about that is it really hits on what we're talking about today and let me say the the respect for non-human beings autonomy it covers quite a spectrum, and that could be anything from no respect at all, animals totally objectified and subject to human whim, and we see that in a lot of pet ownership, but especially in factory farming and mm. animal experimentation, certainly hunting. We have non-humans' needs and desires acknowledged but subordinated to humans. I think that most people who own pets, this is more of the category where you understand that your dog has uh, needs and wants, but there kind of just depends on whether you have the time, whether you feel like it, etc., whether they get those met or not, because they're still pretty much your thing. There's a serious consideration given to non-humans autonomy with the willingness to, to override certain degrees, and th these all kind of overlap, obviously. and. 
this is where I consider myself to be. I still will for sometimes if it's not convenient to me, I won't always do what I think that I should. You know, I won't always give my, my partner the time that, that she deserves, but I think that's well within the tolerances of a normal relationship. We all we're all selfish <laughs> sometimes, but for the most part, I do go out of my way. I do stop what I'm doing to to fulfill her needs and her wants. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a pretty zooey thing to do, whether <laughs> whether you're zoosexual or not. And then there's the other extreme of this, where there's like the unwillingness to override a non-human's autonomy. And uh, interestingly, in I can't remember if you talked about this on the podcast or if it was. Uh, it wasn't on the podcast. It was just a voicemail, yeah. like a Telegram voice message he sent. Last year, Fausti was talking about. It was part of a, one of his very long voice messages where he <laughs> he, uh, he was talking about Calzu. And how um, there were some aspersions made about Calzu, somebody calling it a ring of zoophiles. And he was like, he was explaining that how wrong that was because the people involved with Calzu were like the zooiest of the zoos. The Uh, zooier than thou type of zoo. Yeah. And he was explaining that's where the term zooier than thou came from was people like this who would, you know, if you needed a mare to get onto her trailer to to be taken somewhere and she didn't want to go, that you shouldn't make her get on there because it's not her will you're overriding her will by making her get on there if you're trying to have a conversation with somebody and your dog is either begging for your attention or barking or whatever you shouldn't make them stop so that you can have your conversation because they have just as much of a right to speak up as you do and like his reaction was like you're right but come on man yeah, but the, the point being that there's a whole spectrum of respect for for the will of non-human beings that can be exhibited by humans. And when we talk about that, we're talking about autonomy. Yeah, let's let's take a moment to define what is autonomy. When we talk about autonomy, I think it's worth putting that in. So, Love, can I'm going to yeah. leave that to you? So autonomy is it's essentially the freedom to direct your own actions for your own reasons. And I recently uh, read a book that's a good primer on this topic. It's called The Animal Ethics and the Autonomous Animal Self by Natalie Thomas. And she basically lays out in this book the the groundwork explaining that non-human beings, they don't just do things for no reason, even if we can't necessarily understand what their reasons are. We know enough now through experimentation and observation to either know or have the best explanation for non-human behavior to be that they have their own desires, they they have goals, they have beliefs, they, they have an internal representation of the world with an understanding whether any particular behavior or technique is sensible or not to the respect of whether or not it attains their goal or not. They believe that if they want a certain thing and they behave in a certain way that will have the best chance of of attaining that thing for them. So we know that they have these kinds of internal experiences of the same sort that we have, and which means it's incredible that anybody would doubt that animals feel pain or pleasure, but that's been a a big issue. But I mean, that's a thing. It was in actual science textbooks. I, I think anybody that I would call reasonable would have to at least allow that animals feel pleasure and pain. A good quote, this is actually from Peter Singer, that the capacity for suffering and enjoyment is a prerequisite for having interests at all. Mm -hmm. And so suffering and enjoyment both are very important components 
of autonomy. These are the kinds of things that we're taking into consideration when we're thinking about whether or not to respect another being's will to achieve their goals, satisfy their desires or their preferences, let alone their needs, and to avoid that which they deem worth avoiding. Right. We take our dogs on walks, not just because they need to, it's to go to the bathroom and, and things like this, and because it's good for them, but because they enjoy it. And right. that in and of itself, in my mind, is a worthy goal because when we think about our own experiences and how important pleasure, enjoyment, and satisfaction and fulfillment are to us, these are hugely important goals. You would say that a person who died with a fundamental feeling of dissatisfaction, that's tragic. It's not a small deal. And so in, in large and small ways, this is important. I think we can also reverence Balcom uh, mm -hmm. in Pleasurable Kingdom. Yeah. Basically, that pleasure and enjoyment and satisfaction is a component of animals' lives, not just as often we have been taught, um, the avoidance of suffering. Now, that said, I think a lot of our... I know Peter Singer, for instance, with Animal Liberation, spent a lot of time talking about the capacity to suffer. Mm -hmm. Am I correct on that? That is correct. One thing I'd like to say, Peter Singer actually takes time to address some of the extreme skeptics who take up the stance of people like Rene Descartes, who assert that animals are not thinking, feeling beings at all, but rather biological autonomy, essentially biological machines, not right. capable of thinking or feeling or anything like that. And so he brings up two key points there. He talks about the neurobiology between humans and animals, uh, and he makes the comparisons there. The prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain, that's what's most developed in, in uh, humans, more so than other animals. That's what gives humans their astounding intellectual abilities. It's associated with higher level thinking, planning, things like that. But it's the diencephalon of the brain that's actually responsible for these, you know, basic urges and wants and needs and such. And that region of the brain is actually just as well developed, if not more so, in other mammals and birds. He also goes on to talk about how it's self-evident that animals can experience pain. And so he addresses these skeptics and he talks about other people and he says, how do we know other people experience pain? It seems quite ludicrous. But uh, the, the reason we know, because we can't directly experience other people's pain. So how do we know that someone is in pain? It's because of the outward expression of pain. We know if someone touches a hot stovetop, we can see their reaction to that and their expression of pain. They'll pull their hand away, they'll wince, they may scream, things such as that. And we see essentially identical behavior animals. They'll do much of the same things. They'll yelp, they'll pull away from the source of pain, things like that. Yeah, I mean, the foundation of how we try to dismiss animal autonomy is pretty weak, if relevant at all. It's actually something that Natalie Thomas says in the introduction to her book. She says that our reluctance to take the moral consideration of animals seriously and consistently suggests that we view animal ethics and as optional and uh, dependent upon our own changing needs and desires. And I think she's right. spot on with that. I think she's I think absolutely right. right. Yeah, I think exactly that. I think that we really take for granted 
that we are the only people in this world that have any sort of thought. But Balcom also talks about how ours is a planet rich with minds and experience. And that's mm-hmm. something that we just assume is not the case. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think what it really comes down to is what Peter Singer calls speciesism. And if you say that word a lot online, people will laugh at you, but it's real and it's not something that zoos made up or anything like that. How about you give us Singer's definition, Quantum? So first off, Peter Singer, uh, he's not actually the one who coined the term, but he is the one who popularized it. And the way he it's defined is a prejudice or attitude of bias in favor of the interest of one's own species and against those of other species. Exactly. And that is absolutely what we engage in as humans at every level. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think you can also broaden that out and think of it as that any one species could be considered objectively superior or inferior with relation to another species, which of course ties it in. We have a lot of isms when it comes to this sort of like prejudice where something is superior to another, whether that's racism, sexism, and all of those different kinds of things. But speciesism is probably one that is super entrenched. Yeah, so our attitudes towards animals is heavily influenced by, you know, these traditional Judeo-Christian values that have persisted for thousands of years. And even despite an increasingly secular society, we're still holding on to these ideas of animals. Now, in Genesis of the Bible, it is written that God gave dominion um, over the animals to man and essentially stated that man can do whatever they want with them. They're merely means to an end. And I think what you have to recognize is that it doesn't start with the religion. It starts with the societies that produce the religion. And we talked about this a little bit last year during our Legal Beagles episode. We talked about how society is built on this idea of animals as property as living stock, livestock. This is where our society starts. So it's the religion justifies the society. Mm-hmm. And from there, that is an aspect of society that has never, ever actually changed. So the very foundation of our society relies on this speciesism where we have dominion over animals and we have to justify our dominion over the animals because they're stupid or they're lesser than us in some way. And so this kind of also ties back into hierarchical structures. Once one begins to assert that, say, humans are better than all other animals, you set a precedent for ranking life by biological superiority. And then once that happens, it's only a matter of time or so something like that applies to humans and we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later but the implications in the end of treating animals with equal consideration is that you have to completely restructure society because society is built on that basis of them not being treated equal and justifying that there is some pushback when you say these things too because you're like okay what does equal consideration even look like when it comes to animals it simply means taking their their needs their wants as seriously as you take your own as seriously as you would take another human beings another human beings say happiness or comfort might not be as important to you as yours is because yours is yours but you understand that theirs is as important to them as yours is to you 
Right, exactly. It, it simply means seeing non-human beings in that same degree of consideration. It, it doesn't mean that you that you start issuing driver's licenses to horses because they have <laughs> because that, that that doesn't apply that doesn't make sense but right it does mean that you rethink you know leaving them in a stall all day every day you maybe put a little bit more thought into what you can provide to this being before you bring them into your life or take part in a system that that calls them into being as products. Consideration, one of the core ideas in animal liberation. So as we talked about before, the capacity for suffering is the vital characteristic that gives a being right to equal consideration. Animals Mm -hmm. are capable of suffering and pleasure, so they have interests. And so we must extend equal consideration to them as well. Extending consideration does not mean that we give the same rights as we differ from animals in relevant ways. The basic principle of equality does not require equal or identical treatment. It requires equal consideration, as we talked about animals voting and or (laughs) we could say men getting an abortion. It's not applicable. Mm -hmm. So equal consideration may mean different treatment and different rights. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I, I love something that Candace was saying the other day is like every species is on its own bullshit. So human laws, human technology, human society in general is all human bullshit. Mm-hmm. And so other animals, dogs have their own bullshit and their bullshit doesn't necessarily make sense to apply for us mm-hmm. in the same way. But assuming that like another species is inferior because they don't care about voting or they don't participate in our society that's inherently egocentric and anthropocentric mm-hmm. I, I think it's funny that we we default to usually talking about like dogs and horses mm-hmm. but there's all these other animals that absolutely fall into the same thing cattle pigs chickens birds no one everyone assumes birds are just stupid unless they're crows I've heard that so much that birds are just biological machines. That's like a running theme for like, let's just forget about them because they don't have any thoughts or feelings. But it's not true. It's provably incorrect. But it's interesting that we might be interested in saying like, oh, dolphins are super intelligent. They count as people. Dogs, they're not quite on the level as dolphins. They deserve some sort of respect. But cows are nothing. They are just food and... I'm not interested in talking about them at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this weird cognitive dissonance here where we have a differentiation of companion animals and food animals Mm -hmm. and how they're treated under the law as separate, not just under the law, but also in society. So in terms of moral consideration, even though we can provably say that pigs are some of the smartest animals, at least as smart as dogs, Mm-hmm. We don't have the same moral consideration for pigs. In our society, in Western society, murdering a dog is a bad thing. Murdering a pig is a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're going to have bacon for Sunday brunch. And that's just how it is. And we just say some animals under our law have certain protections that other animals don't. I think part of it is also that we, as most of us in our society are really used to like like what a dog looks like in pain mm-hmm. and we're far removed from say pigs in a slaughterhouse 
Sure. Our pigs on the farms, and we, we don't have that idea in our brain. Oh yeah, it's because we, we don't see it. We The beings that are close to us, we can see dogs and, and cats especially are featured in media all the time of all kinds, television shows and commercials and memes advertisements on buses and stuff they're just there they're all over the place in all kinds of expressive states you know sometimes excited sometimes happy sometimes scared these are these are animals that most of us have in our lives we can empathize with them and the the lives of what we call food animals are pretty much completely hidden we see whitewashed versions of them we see romanticized images of pigs and cows on farms out in the field etc we don't see how they really are just crowded and crammed into cages and houses. I, I think the only popular image of a cow I can think of is a cow advertising for you to eat chicken instead of burger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely the most prevalent. But so And the know, only like chicken images I can think of are like chicken food restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. And we we don't see the reality of their lives and we we don't see like uh, i think as paul mccartney said if uh, slaughterhouses had glass walls we'd all be vegetarian um, right. and i think that's provable there's a study that i have here that does say that slaughterhouse workers are slightly more likely to to have serious um, psychological distress based on their jobs but mild to moderate brings that total figure from mild to severe up to about one-fifth so about 20% of slaughterhouse workers have some measurable degree of distress from what they're doing. And I think that is, that does speak pretty loudly. I think that most people, I would like to think, would quail at the thought of slitting the throat of another living being. I think this is why what we're talking about, why it's you know hidden away from public view. We're very but, interested I mean, in the products. But the rain's on the wall. Like we usually measure like job satisfaction with turnover rates. Mm-hmm. Year over year, slaughterhouse workers basically have a hundred percent turnover rate. Like people do not stay in that profession for very long. Yeah. So it's kind of a harrowing, psychologically damaging existence to have to deal with all this death and slaughter and see it up close and deal with all the things that allow us to not have to ever consider where our meat comes from. Yeah, it's also worth noting that in the uh, slaughter industry, they have some of the highest injury and illness rates out of any industry. Yeah. Yeah, that is not, it's not only is it like mentally distressing, but it's also dangerous work. So that's worth, that's worth noting, like someone is absorbing all of that terribleness so that you don't have to. And in addition to all this, of course, the entire industry is founded upon abuse of exploitation taking the life of another being is that's as about as abusive and exploitative as it gets and so it it's not really a surprise that every other practice involved with it is also abusive and, and exploitative and you can't have billions and billions of animals a year being turned into edible products if they're not being born and uh, I don't know if raised is quite the word but at least uh, fed and minimally cared for until they're ready for that and they're not going to breed on their own to the level that we require to to have McDonald's selling hundreds (laughs) of millions of burgers exactly Uh, Rosenberg in How Meat Changed Sex really outlines this dichotomy Mm -hmm. as anti-bestiality laws were being proposed 
they were being struck down like people they legislators would say no i don't think so because the farm industry was worried that those laws would be used to stop them from doing what they do and that's part of why almost every anti-bestiality law in the west Mm -hmm. includes caveats for farm industry you can do all the same things and way worse to farm animals that are prohibited under law for animals that we consider pets or companion animals. Mm -hmm. There are laws that specify, like, if you get horny while doing this, then it's illegal. Mm -hmm. Unless you're doing it for the purpose of meat consumption. Right. So these laws basically allow for the vast majority of grievous abuse to continue and they really only outlaw amateurs basically (laughs) if you're you're not (laughs) professional you ain't a pro you don't got a farming license yeah if you're you're if you're not doing this to slit their throat at some point then you're then you're breaking the law well that's a terrible way to put it but you know what's what's funny is that if you think about how farm animals are treated and relate that to how we treat humans like we've had this sort of thing happen before in in america we had a slavery system and part of the abolishment like the rhetoric towards abolishing it is because of how inhumane it was Mm -hmm. that humans were being treated like chattel somehow we managed to understand that what happens to chattel is abusive for humans, but could not connect it to it being abusive towards animals. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of it is that we just, by necessity, we're just perceiving that animals are so clueless that, oh, oh, we're gonna sell your children on the market to be taken away from you forever. It doesn't matter because you're an animal, you don't feel anything, it doesn't matter to you. But, Obviously, we can relate that to humans because we did the same thing to humans and it was a horrific practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that we can all pretty much see that that there's a lot of horror. I, I don't know. I don't know that we need to belabor the point by presenting a humongous litany. <laughs> any Anybody who wants to know how bad meat and dairy and eggs industries are, if there's any amount of evidence out there. But I think that we all do know it, and we either know it because we find out about these things explicitly, or we know enough to know that we don't want to know about it. And that's the same as, as any kind of denial. Many time a person is in denial, they, they have to know enough about what they don't want to know about to avoid it. And we, on large, uh, avoid that. And we can see the other side of the coin. We can see how non-human beings are if we take a look at, say, sanctuary farms. We can see how they behave when they're not being abused and exploited. Yeah. They act very differently. They play with each other. They uh, uh, they play with toys. They gamble. Animals around. playing with balls is my favorite thing. Yeah, and I mean that in the most platonic sense ever. Yeah, um, yeah. like yeah. actual like beach balls and or whatever kind of balls that they they yeah. use them to play with. Mm-hmm. It's it's awesome. I love watching animals play with toy balls. Yeah, all kinds of toys. There's, you can see any number of videos of pigs playing with dog toys, throwing them around, goats jumping around on, on objects that are placed in their area for them to have fun with. 
playing with each other, cuddling with each other. They, they display the whole range of fun seeking and, and affection that our more common companions do and, and that we do. They but like you know, to be with each other. They like to just experience their bodies in a free and, and enjoyable way, you know, like everybody does. Right. I think there is an inability or a desire not to recognize the richness mm-hmm. of a non-human existence. And I think that's a lot of times used as a way to like justify exploiting like what is a do- what is a, what is a cow going to do all day other than stand there and right. eat grass or lie around they're not writing symphonies they're just standing there <laughs> i challenge you to look around you and find one person in your life that's writing symphonies some of you will be able to do it but not very many of you yeah <laughs> but just that valuation of another life that you aren't living we can see this in classism in which you know the poor are are exploited by say rich uh, industrialists because um, they don't see any value in the lives of lower class people so what would they be doing if they weren't working for me to make me money nothing worthwhile right not in their opinion and not in the opinion of of non-human beings if they were i think able to give us their opinion and i think a good illustration of this I've heard that phrase before, that they'd just be standing around, not really doing anything, just standing in a field, eating grass, whatever. If you look at a person who's sleeping, to all appearances, that person isn't doing anything. They're just lying there. They're not even talking or looking at anything. They're just lying there. But of course, they're dreaming. They're having an extremely rich internal experience that you're simply not privy to. And you're not in a place where you can judge what their experience is. Only they are. And so it's not your place to say that this other being's life does or doesn't have value in and of itself just because it does or doesn't have value to you. And we do this with other humans, not just with classism, also Mm -hmm. with racism. If we look at the colonization of Africa Mm -hmm. and the exploitation there, it's like your cultures are not good enough. Your cultures are, are, are primitive. You're savages. And so we're bringing our enlightened culture because it's obviously better and bringing it to you because what would you be doing otherwise other than working in diamond mines for us? Some weird cultural practice that doesn't make any sense to us. I think the history of human exploitation has taught us that if we look for an excuse to exploit others, we're going to just make something up and justify it anyway. Whether that's calling people savages, calling animals dumb, just saying... For whatever reason, their lives are less valuable than ours. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that for zoophiles, our big crime is raising animals to the level of humans in sexual situations. But I think overall, there's this other side of that coin where a lot of what we do to each other is debase humans to the status that we give to animals in order mm-hmm. to exploit them. And for animals to be that baseline exploitation is telling on how we regard them and how we recognize that if humans were treated the same way, that it would be debasing to their humanity. We can see the results of how all these different isms uh, affect humans, but I think it's worth examining how they affect animals. So I'm going to let Quantum start us off here. Okay. Uh, It's very common to perform experiments on animals, especially Mm. in medicine. 
And so one of the things that Peter Singer brings up is that a lot of the testing we do on animals, the results aren't necessarily applicable to humans. An example is thalidomide. Now, if anyone doesn't know what thalidomide is... I don't know. I've never heard of it. Never heard of thalidomide? Nope. Thalidomide was a widely uh, distributed drug. Thalidomide caused severe birth defects in children born to women who took thalidomide while they were pregnant. I did hear about that now. Yes. Yep. Thalidomide. So thalidomide was extensively tested in animals. And all the animals that they tested it on, only one of the species, a specific kind of rabbit, exhibited the same results with the birth defects. And so it was ruled perfectly safe for human consumption. As it turned out, pregnant women were taking thalidomide, and when they gave birth, their children had severe birth defects. So we did these tests on animals. We thought this medicine was perfectly fine, and it absolutely was not. It had terrible, horrible results. And so we're doing these tests on animals, subjecting them to horrible conditions and suffering, and we don't even get anything out of it. In fact, it hurt us to do that. Right. Yeah. So we just exploit them because for some reason they're lesser than us, so their lives are lesser. So that's why if we can't do human experimentation, Let's just start with animals. That's how that speciesism takes effect there. Yep. They're just seen as a particular kind of resource, and if they can be economically afforded, then might as well go ahead. I I know Singer talks a little bit in the beginning of the animal experimentation chapter of animal liberation about some heat fatigue tests that were done, one of many that were done on kittens in this case, where they basically caused these cats to die of heat stroke and recorded, you know, their observations. And their conclusion was something like, and so basically our results are consistent with previous results in this area. And it's like, (laughs) (laughs) wow, those were lives that just got used up for that. And why would you do that unless those lives had as much value to you as any non-living resource? They're just objects and that's a hideous example of what speciesism can lead to right it can also lead to things like habitat loss for animals where we try to develop and expand as humans without Mm -hmm. any consideration for the animals in those areas whether that's caving over forests deforesting and then then of course we get mad when those forest animals are in our yards or in our homes (laughs) and Where else are they going to go? But we don't care. There's also, in this case, speciesism leads to a genocide of minks. Yeah. Because, was it, 15 million minks that fucking got killed just in case because of COVID-19? And we remember earlier this year in China, it was domestic dogs and I think both dogs and cats, or at least dogs, that they just went around killing people's pet dogs because maybe... And we, we've seen it any number of times with the bird culls and pigs. And then there's there are things like in the United States right now, the Bureau of Land Management is actively exterminating wild horses in this country, I think, to the mm-hmm. tune of like 40,000 horses. And the purpose of this is to clear that land for cattle grazing. Yeah, of all reasons, so that more of these beings can be brought into existence and, and killed. You know, food. the meat industry so. in general has this big... Giant, I don't even know if it's a cycle, it's more like a cyclone of like destruction that it leaves in its wake. Well, we're killing and culling horses in order to make room for cows, which we're going to be killing to eat in Brazil. 
the Brazilian rainforest, the cattle ranchers are murdering indigenous peoples of the Amazon and burning the rainforest to make room for fucking cows so that they can kill them and ship them off to be eaten. Like, destroying the rainforest, which is one of the most important environmental features to support not just human life, but all life on our planet. Mm-hmm. We need these things, and in the interest of making room for more meat, we're burning it down. Mm-hmm. And of course, the meat industry is also responsible for the vast majority of sexual abuse of non-humans being considered legally de jure accepted practice. It is okay to essentially rape and murder and pillage and genocide all of these animals. That's okay as long as you're doing it to make more animals to be exploited in the same way. So we, we're all pretty familiar to some degree or other. It's really inescapable nowadays of what the results of speciesism have been, are, and uh, will continue to be unless we overcome speciesism. And so I think that the world that we would all want to see come into being is a world in which the inhabitants are happy, or at least, at the very least, not suffering horribly and unnecessarily. I think we all know that this is true of ourselves. We, it's true of our families and our friends and our neighbors. This is something that it, it's not controversial to say that I think we all like happiness and want the world to go in that direction. And that speciesism is a major cause for going in the opposite direction as, as we've been covering. That we like happiness, we can see this all over the place. We love to see happy people. We love to see happy people of any species. We like watching animals playing, animals being rescued and being reunited with their families. We like hearing that that our, our friends and family have good things happening to them. So I think this all leads to basically one thing. So if one takes the idea of respecting animal autonomy, personhood, cognizance, pleasure and suffering, all of that to its logical conclusion and actually takes it seriously. Ultimately, it leads to a re-examination of one's own relationship with the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about us as zoos is we're already primed to regard non-humans outside of the conventions of society. Mm-hmm. And, and those among us who are inclined to regard animals in ways normally restricted to humans are additionally primed to question humankind's treatment of non-humans. Mm-hmm. But even though we all arrive at these same kind of questions, we don't all arrive at the same conclusions. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. I think the largest being our own cultural programming. I think it sounds like brainwashing, but I say that as a value-neutral thing. Cultural programming happens all the time just based on the culture that we're living in. We absorb the values and norms of our culture and we have a need to harmonize or maybe integrate uh, our own existence with those cultural norms. We try to, you know, reconcile our own ideals with what's actually practical. Mm-hmm. And the degree to which we eschew cultural norms will be different for different people. And it's important to take into account that we all exist in the same overarching culture, zoos and everybody. For us here on the podcast, 
and for many zoos not on the podcast, but speaking just generally for ourselves, following the dictates of our moral orientations towards non-humans means that we don't intentionally harm them, obviously, and that we take positive steps to avoid accidentally harming them because you don't want to find that what you're doing is is passively harming either. Right. And we tend to actively seek to engineer circumstances so that the needs of our non-human companions, their needs and desires are fulfilled and in which their autonomy is optimally respected within realistic limits. I've trained my partner to stop when I tell her to stop so that she doesn't run into the street. That's reasonable. (laughs) If that's not an issue, then she's free to go where she wants to go. And so we don't curtail or disregard their wishes and their wills in ways that if you were to do the same to human beings would be considered abusive or exploitative. And so like for me, recently, this is manifested itself in no longer eating meat. Mm -hmm. But that, that wasn't always the case. And that's a matter of the circumstances of the community I was in or the culture that I was around or the the economic reality of where I was in my life. All of those things did not, you know, mesh together to mean no longer eat meat. And I had plenty of reasons why that might be the case. But circumstances have changed. And now I'm surrounded by a culture of people that have helped me facilitate not eating meat anymore and actually being able to achieve that to some degree or to an increasing degree even because of the people I'm around and the support that I have in order to do it. Not everyone has that. Not everyone has the same kind of like impetus to make those kinds of changes in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact of the matter is that something like not eating meat or not using animal products or whatever, it gets a lot of pushback. And I think a lot of it is because people will say, even if you're only eating vegetables, you're still reliant on exploitation, whether that's human exploitation of farmers. If you drink coffee, well, sorry to tell you about the farmers in Colombia who are being exploited or animals are still used in order to assist in farming vegetables or the environment is still negatively harmed by avocados, which are all true. However, In terms of doing what one can do as an individual to harmonize with our personal beliefs and with the culture at large, it's a personal moral practice. People will criticize your inability to achieve perfection in your goals as an excuse to say, so why bother? Mm -hmm. There's that comic. Oh, goddammit, I don't know who it was by. It's the one with the, the peasant saying we should improve society somewhat and the smug fucker they're saying, oh, and yet you participate in society. Curious. Uh-huh. It's and, that uh, same, oh, you want to end capitalism? How about you put down your iPhone, asshole? Uh, it's nice to have capitalism to get an iPhone, isn't it? So therefore, since you use an iPhone in order to organize your anti-capitalist whatever, you should just give up. And I think that the real takeaway is that all of these things, these convictions towards lessening your reliance on the exploitation of animals, they are really about doing what you can within your own means to avoid contributing to the exploitation of animals. And you shouldn't let orthodoxy or perfection be the enemy of the good. Whatever you can do is worth doing. And if you can't be perfect, that's okay. 
You don't have to be perfect. Perfection should not be the enemy of the good. Peter Singer, for instance, is sometimes criticized for not being vegan because he will sometimes eat animal products if he's in a place where to not do so presents an unreasonable challenge or something. I can't remember exactly the way he put it, but he'll get flack for that. And the thing is that when you do that, you're setting an impossible standard or a standard that is impractical for probably most people in most circumstances and it's not helpful. There are always going to be challenges to implementing morally consistent practices, no matter what they are. If you have, for instance, I I have a cat. She's an an obligate carnivore, and so I have to feed her meat. It's, I just have to, or, or I don't have the cat. As it happens, I got her before I went vegan myself, so it wasn't something that I consciously thought of at the time, but- But then you have to ask yourself, does veganism have to exclude having a cat as a companion right and and these kinds of challenges they're they're always going to come up just because you don't necessarily have an answer that's consistent with your stated moral position doesn't mean that you should throw the rest of it overboard that doesn't mean that fuck it if my cat's gonna eat fish then i guess i'm going to too it's a matter of doing what you can And there comes a point when you have to accept that suffering and exploitation probably realistically cannot be utterly abolished from life on this planet. That's probably impossible, but it can still be hugely reduced by personal actions that we are responsible for individually. So we we put ourselves and the best of our feelings and intentions into action where and whenever we can. There are mutualistic relationships that can be had on small scales that can't really be right. had on large scales. For instance, right. eggs. I I have friends who have chickens, and I'm perfectly fine eating their eggs because those chickens are companions. They, they just live there, and they drop eggs occasionally, and they're not going to do anything with them. They're not going to sit on them. They're not going to be fertilized. There are people who would object to that saying that you still shouldn't have them because by having chickens, you're still taking on that exploitative mindset of having them for the eggs. This is often used against zoos as well, because people presume that there's an exploitative attitude towards uh, animals sexually, that regardless of what you say, you're just trying to use them. Well, no, that's not the attitude. And that's not the case just because you posit it as an objection. And I've I've heard it taken further with eggs that they should be given back to the chickens to eat because it was their it was their bodily processes, it was their nutrients that went to make the eggs. When I hear things like this, this is searching for a reason to justify not eating them. It goes beyond reasonability at that point. Right. That seems a little crazy. Yeah, I, I would be perfectly fine eating the eggs of chickens who lived and just hung out at my property because I would be fine with having chickens as friends regardless of whether they gave me eggs or not. And if they don't care about them, which they sometimes do and sometimes don't, then the ones they don't, fine, I'm fine with that. It gets a little more difficult when we talk about things like dairy because there does have to be another being born in order for lactation to occur. If you have your own cow or your own goat and they happen to become pregnant, they can continue to be milked beyond the time that a calf or a kid would need that milk. And I don't see the problem with drinking that or turning it into cheese for yourself. And I know that we know for a fact that that sort of thing on that level can actually be a pleasurable experience for the cow or the goat. I wouldn't call that exploitative unless you were causing them to become 
pregnant in order for you to get milk. That to me clearly is exploitative. And then of course there come issues of what happens to the offspring then, and uh, the answers to that are usually grisly. Yeah. The point being that there are workable small-scale models in which some of these things are not exploitative, but on a large scale they are. You know, this is basically the conclusion that we've come to, but I think what we really want to drill home is it's not necessarily the only conclusion. So we want to encourage you to take the time to think about speciesism and how it relates to you as a human and as a zoo and what the logical steps that make sense to you to harmonize the values of respecting animal autonomy and cognizance, enhancing their lives, and reducing their suffering are. Mm-hmm. Figure out what that means to you and go from there. Yeah, Stay true to yourself. Yeah, homie. Hey, Quantum, close us out. The day may come when the rest of the animal creation may acquire those rights which never could have been withholden from them but by the hand of tyranny. The French have already discovered that the blackness of the skin is no reason why a human being should be abandoned without redress to the caprice of a tormentor. It may one day come to be recognized that the number of the legs, the velocity of the skin, or the termination of the off-sacrum are reasons equally insufficient for abandoning a sensitive being to the same fate. What else is it that should trace the insuperable line? Is it the faculty of reason, or perhaps the faculty of discourse? But a full-grown horse or dog is beyond comparison a more rational as well as a more conversable animal than an infant of a day or a week or even a month old. But suppose they were otherwise, what would it avail? The question is not can they reason nor can they talk, but can they suffer? Jeremy Bentham. We'll be right back with more Zoo Than Now right after this. Welcome back to our How of the Day episode of Ask Zoo the top-rated cross-species advice program on the internet since before its inception. I'm the ultimate treat to your advent calendar, Zooey. And I'm just an elf on the shelf, Toggle. Which holiday are we celebrating today, Toggle? I think it's winter holiday nondescript. So that means we have a cocoa, an indistinct candelabra, and a handful of very suspicious mushrooms. Oh my. The mushrooms are for the reindeer. I seem to recall something to this effect from last year. What can we say? They'll pull your sleigh. That was just vaguely horny enough to be an innuendo. Which means we're off to a great start. Remember folks, we're always waiting for your salacious stories and confounding conundrums. If you want thoughtful cross-species advice you can't just get anywhere, drop us a line. Speaking of confounding conundrums, here's one from Insecurely Yours in Indiana. Insecurely writes, Dear Zooey, My human and I have been going steady for a while. He recently moved back into the house after college, and we've rekindled a relationship that we had to put on hold while he was away. Things are great in our relationship. There's only one problem. His parents. According to some dumb human law, I belong to them. We usually get by on the daily just fine, but should I be worried about his human parents' right to their property? I don't doubt that if they found out what we were doing, they would have much more than a stern look. But isn't it better to ignore the rules for the sake of our relationship? Ah, it's a tale as old as time in our world. A requited love complicated by a conflict of ownership. 
<sighs> How many of our first loves were the ones we grew up with? How many stars aligned to bring these two beings together under the same roof? Where magic sparked unbeknownst to others, sleeping comfortably in their beds, unaware of their fateful tryst taking place only a couple of rooms over? Almost all of us fall in love before we have the right to claim ownership of another being by law. And isn't that a funny thing to have to deal with? Families tend to claim belonging to one another. Insecurely, you're likely considered a member of the family rather than owned property. The worry is when conflict drives a family apart, and the dynamic shifts to suddenly being about who belongs to whom. It has the potential to become complicated. However insecurely yours, you can be secure in the fact that among most two-legged families, the one who takes the best care of their four-legged companions is de facto the quote-unquote owner, regardless of what the law says. Don't be shy to let it be known who you prefer to spend your days with. In Western human society, it's typically expected that children will one day venture out on their own. And when that happens, your two-legged boy toy can make a strong case to bring you along with them. This actually makes your job really easy. Just do what you already love to do. Spend all the time you want with your paramour and flaunt it. The evidence of your strong bond is the key to breaking the spell of two-legger property laws, at least when it comes to being a member of the same family. Just remember, in two-legger society, modesty about sex is usually preferred, so keep the PDA to light petting and plutonic licks. In the end, never let two-legger property law make you insecure about your own autonomy and right to choose who you spend your days with. Be secure in your convictions of love, and hold your paramour to the same standard. Good luck, Insecurity Yours. We hope your future is bright and secure. Up next, here's one from Stable Boy in Stockholm. Oh, a two-legger one. Yes, indeed. Stable Boy writes, Dear Zooey, there is an absolutely gorgeous mare in my life with whom I have the pleasure of spending a great deal of time. Her personality, her mannerisms, her build, everything about her is breathtaking. Happier still. She seems to delight in the time we spend together. She calls for me when she spots me in the distance and has an insatiable need for attention and affection when we are together. I freely admit that I am quite enamored with her and as far as I can tell, she feels similarly about me. That brings me to the dilemma I face, though that feels like too light of a word. Impending crisis seems more appropriate. This mare, she does not belong to me. She is up for sale, has been since I met her and will no doubt be taking away one day. The price her owner is asking is very high, but if I make certain arrangements, I may be able to afford it. I freely admit that I am not in an ideal situation to be providing for a new horse, and for the sake of discussion, even if the financial concerns were not present, there is a more troubling philosophical matter as well. Currently, she is not fully saddlebroken, which is partially responsible for the delay in her sale. I myself do not ride and would not be comfortable putting her through that training were she under my care. But I also realize that if she were mine, and something were to happen to me, she could face a terrible fate if she wasn't seen as a useful animal. So where does that leave me? As far as options are concerned, I do nothing, and there's a very strong possibility she is purchased and we never meet each other again. Will I regret my inaction for the rest of my life? Alternatively, I make arrangements to become her owner, and now I fix a huge financial burden in which I am ill-prepared, on top of the ethical dilemma over whether stopping her training ultimately jeopardizes her life. This issue, I hope, is far in the future, but the mere possibility that this day may come casts a pall over the time I spend with her. 
I despise that. And it feels like the only way to overcome this issue is to have a plan in place. So if you have any similar experiences, or reads on the situation that you would be willing to share, I would greatly welcome your input. Gosh, this is a pretty dire quagmire. Indeed, and this is one our panel of advice specialists couldn't come to an agreement on. On the question of acting now or waiting until you're more secure to bring a horse into your life, there were serious differences in opinion, so we'll try to amalgamate our experiences into what will hopefully be useful advice. I think we should begin on being realistic about what it costs to care for a horse companion. The general population and normie two-legger horse people always make it out as if owning a horse is some impossible task reserved strictly for rich people. But it's not. Depending on your locale, caring for a horse may be no more expensive than owning a car. So let's break down some of the basic costs. Here are some things that need to be done regularly to keep a horse in good physical shape and the costs associated with them. These prices are in US dollars, so your mileage may vary or kilometers may vary, in Stockholm. Your mare companion will need her hooves trimmed every four weeks or so, and that could run you about $100 or more, depending on the fare. She'll need a monthly worming, about $15 a month. If you live in a sandy or dirt environment, a $30 sand clear once a month is important. Every year, she'll need a teeth floating, which is about $200, and shots, which will be about $140 or more. Vet visits are going to be your most expensive um, expense, so look into insurance for that. Ideally, you'd want to live with your marvelous mare on your own property, but if that's not an option, you can always board elsewhere. Typically, board can range from up to $100 a month to $900 a month, depending on the facility and options. Keep in mind, Wherever she boards, exercise and proper diet are extremely important to keep your love healthy and happy, and making sure she's saddle-broken for her own protection may be a worthwhile investment. Now admittedly, all of that is well out of my price range, and it's on top of actually ugh, purchasing your mare friend. But these are some of the realistic bills that come with falling in love with a horse. You have to decide if this is within the realm of possibility for you. There's something to be said for making sure you're financially stable before making such an investment. But based on personal experience and unending regret, one of our advice specialists suggests that you ask yourself, is it a matter of being unprepared to take on these expenses or being unwilling to make the necessary changes in your life to make something possible? Their advice is to make dog damn sure you're truly unable to guarantee your paramour's security before you say no and that you're not just put off by the challenge of giving up another hobby or luxury, or downsizing, or pushing hard for a pay raise or a new job so you can be together. Don't pussyfoot around and let this moment pass you by because it's inconvenient. Be truly unable to act. That way, when you think of her, you can focus on your memories and not on your choices. If things eventually take a turn, don't forget that you do have some control over her fate. Insurance, wills, being picky about rehoming, etc. The fear of that stuff happening makes for a poor reason not to act if you've done your due diligence and you're as prepared as you can be. Finally, there's the advice you may not want to hear, and that's if you truly can't reasonably manage the expenses of caring for a mayor paramour, enjoy the time you have with her and spend your time investing in a future where you might be able to bring a future lover into your life. It's hardly the romantic answer, but this particular advice specialist is ever the pragmatist. 
In their opinion, the wisest course of action is to keep on building up your financial independence, learn to make sound investments based on professional advice, and save enough money for land and future healthcare expenses involved in caring for a horse. Another mare you meet in the future won't be exactly like the one that got away, but in the end, you'll be thankful that she's her own person. With luck, your equine friend will hopefully find a companion that is in a stable financial situation, and that person will love her immensely for her unique personality. She might even make another two-legger as happy as she's made you. Frankly, stable boy, I'm not much of a pragmatist, but there's also the middle of the road option. It sounds like you have a little bit of time. You could commit with her caretaker now to a date far enough in the future that you may have a chance to push yourself hard for her, to give her the life she deserves and make you both happy. Committing to love is always a huge, life-changing event. No matter what you decide to do, remember that love always finds a way where you least expect it to. And that's our show, dear listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. We look forward to answering all your Zooey relationship questions next episode. Keep those submissions coming. We'll see you next time on Ask Zooey. Same zoo time, same zoo channel. Thanks, friends, for listening to Zooier Than Thou. Join us next episode as we talk about Therians in the zoo community. It's sure to awaken your inner animal, so don't miss it. You can subscribe to the podcast via our Zooey RSS feed. Just point your favorite podcast client at rss.zoo.wtf and off you go. You can also check out our extensive bonus content at bonus.zoo.wtf. If you want to show your support financially, head on over to donate.zoo.wtf. We can be found all over the web where podcasts are distributed. Try searching for Zooier Than Now in your favorite podcast directory. Our podcast website is still zoo.wtf. That's WTF as in, well, that's fine. Our Twitter is at Zooier Than Thou. And you can follow Zooey's naughty advice at Ask Zooey. Follow Toggle at One Big Grumpy Rat. And follow me at Meow of Love. A reminder that we have a form that enables anonymous submissions to the podcast on our website, zoo.wtf. You can email us a PDF of your Animal Liberation Manifesto. Ask Zooey what they asked Santa for this year. It was a reindeer gangbang. Or resend the same hate messages that got you suspended from Twitter, which will be immediately sorted into file 13. You can also simply email us at mail at zoo.wtf. One must wonder exactly how many male puns there are to be made. Support four-legger independence by sharing this podcast with every revolutionary you know. All non-humans who contributed to this podcast were very good boys and girls and made it onto Santa's nice list. It's true, folks. Eating pig pussy is 100% vegan. I'm Love Cat. Be kind to each other. It's the sexiest, zooiest thing you can do. And I'm Toggle. Happy to end the Year of the Rat on a positive note by sharing it with you. And you're almost finished listening to Zooier Than Thou. State of my fellow zoos, we'll see you next time you feel like howling at the moon. Oh!